Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast, where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel, Jurassic Park. And also not that too. My name is Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big, dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 32, Control, recorded on September 21st. I just finished closing up the pool out back, kind of. <laughs> Cleaning off the, the covers, anyhow. Thanks for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. You can check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. And today's intro is from the song Adam Age Vampire Cat in the Brain. And our outro is Hummingbird. Moving on to our corrections from the last episode, I, uh, I owe you all an apology. I knew full well that when I was apologizing for yelling, Hey, stop the car! While you were driving, because that was so distracting that also playing a police siren during the apology was tantamount to a jerk move. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Please forgive me. Another correction, it turns out that when I told my kids that they can hold it till we get home, that that was a mistake. I told them about these Alaskan wood frogs that have been observed to hold their urine for up to eight months. And I'm sorry to my kids, we should have cloned you with some wood frog DNA. Just a little, to make car rides a bit easier, but we didn't. Sorry, kids. And uh, when my guest, Dr. Adam Pritchard, said in episode 30, Control, we've got too many episodes named Control now, that he was surprised that Crichton included the Colovasaurus as one of the animals listed in the park. And I didn't say anything, but I kind of felt like I knew right away that I was unfamiliar that there was a Colovasaurus in, in the novel. I couldn't figure out where that was coming from. And so here we are a few weeks later, and Dr. Pritchard is still fascinating me and teaching me new things about this book. So Colovasaurus is in the novel Jurassic Park, but it's not in all of the novels of Jurassic Park. What? Dr. Pritchard's version of the novel was printed in 1990 and is the hardcover. Somehow, early in the novel's run, someone snuck into the manuscript, replaced Microceratops with Colovasaurus on InGen's list, but not in the rest of the novel. So when the Microceratops are jumping around in the trees over the Mesozoic Jungle River, um, they're not Colovasaurus, nor could they have been a Colovasaurus, but it is on the list. Just on these lists, it's so strange. Why would they do that? <laughs> Moving on to dinosaur news. Uh, this September, a new paper came out about another abelosaur in Argentina called Alamgasum nubilus, Brachyrostrin abelosaurid from the Portezuelo Formation of Patagonia, Argentina. Uh, and it gives us another big, neat, short-armed, horny theropod marching around. The paper is pretty upfront that abelosaurs are abundant and known from all over the Lake Cretaceous of Gondwana. So this isn't surprising, but it's interesting to continue to observe the diversity of these creatures. Abelosaurids appear in almost all regions of Gondwana and in all stages, except for the Coniacian, in which they are globally unknown, says the paper. Alamgasum nubilis was uncovered from the Portozuelo formation of the Turonian to the Canadian age, and the holotype is of a sub-adult that had achieved sexual maturity, says the paper. I don't know what bone you need to find to know that. <laughs> uh, quote, this taxon is based on several axial and appendicular elements and is diagnosed by the presence of a marked pattern of rugosity on the lateral surface of the fibula and a dorsoventrally deep lateral wall of the calcaneum. So it had like a fancy lower leg and ankle, I think is what that's saying. Some of its caudal vertebrae are morphologically slightly different from any other abelosaurid. It's been run through the phylogenetic analysis machine and recovered as a, quote, unstable taxon within Brachyrostra, given that it was recovered as a sister taxon of Fural usoria, or in several positions within this clade. 
So a Brachyrostrin abelosaur would be one that is more closely related to Carnotaurus than it is to abelosaurus, and is known to have had a short snout. In fact, abelosaurs are distinctly short-snouted and have bony crests above their eyes, have extensive grooves and splits as skull ornamentations, stocky hind limbs, and ridiculous, ridiculously small forelimbs, like a salamander's arm on an iguana. Uh, these animals could range in size from 17 to 30 feet long. Although its precise phylogenetic position is a little problematic, its identification, quote, is important because it is the first abelosaurid from the Turonian Coniacian interval, and it increases the diversity of this theropod family at a time of marked turnover in the tetrapod fauna of South America, global climate change, and mass extinction events recorded worldwide in the marine realm. And because our heroes have been finding dinosaur eggs in the south fields of Jurassic Park recently, here is some more news about dinosaur nesting. A New Year's paper from January 1st, 2022, named Upper Cretaceous Dinosaur Nesting Colony Preserved in Abandoned Crevasse Splay Deposits, Wee Island, South Korea, maybe it's Y Island? W-I, set out to employ a taphonomic perspective to improve understanding of nesting behavior. Based on a series of sedimentological characteristics, the preserved sediment they were excavating could, quote, be classified into three facies associations. One, ephemeral fluvial channels. Two, crevasse splay lobes. And three, floodplains. The researchers identified three species of eggs called Propagulithis widowensis, Reticululithis acicularis, and Enigma ulithis vesicularis, and it's said that these egg species were frequently found together. The most common eggs were the Propagulithis, which were preserved in clutches and characterized by numerous closely spaced pore canals, indicating that the eggs were buried during oviposition, which increased their likelihood of being preserved, which is good. Uh, Whatever was laying these eggs preferred these ephemeral fluvial channels for extended periods, says the report. I don't know what else to say about this one. Fossil eggs, they're in the ground, sometimes in clutches. Maybe I'll skip egg news next time. Uh, I don't know about that. All right, with the corrections and dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. All right, I'd like to introduce today my special guest. It's executive director and co-founder for the Institute for Liberal Studies in our nation's capital, Ottawa, as Fox News host Tucker Carlson calls it. Ottawa. Uh, Welcome to the show, Matt Bufton. Pleasure to be here. So Matt and I met in Wellington, New Zealand in 1998, launching the nation's fourth most popular guitar-based digibongo acapella rap-funk comedy folk duo. And our act was picked up by the BBC and became New Zealand's third highest exported good in 2006, behind sheep and goat meat, and tied for a third with the Blu-ray release of The Event Horizon, which featured the chilling performance of New Zealand's fourth greatest export, Sam Neill. And that was a whirlwind tour for us, but I think we really hit our stride after HBO gave us a very low-paying gig for a few years, and after winning all the Grammys for Best Comedy Albums, we went our separate ways. Where do you keep your Grammy? I like to keep it on my shelf. I mean, it's an audio podcast, people can't see it, but if they could see behind me on the bookshelf right now, they would see just a row of Grammys from that famous year. Mm -hmm. You have to remind me, was it you who was a big fan of The Flight of the Concords? I am a big fan of The Flight of the Concords. All right, have you, um, Jermaine Clement has made a very interesting career for himself and he's like he's he's hard to spot because he can he's like a chameleon some in some ways but he, you can always hear that there's something very special whenever the performance starts coming out of him and um he's had some wild roles um and i know your daughter's still young but have you gotten into moana yet we have not no but i'm always looking for good kids programming so i'd love to hear about it well he plays a crab and like, as soon as, uh, he, he just has, like, a one scene, he sings a song, he beats a few people up, and that's it. 
but the song is enchanting. It's just amazing what this guy can do with his voice. And uh, if you haven't seen it, check that out. It's incredible. You probably just uh, look for that. I... Yeah, you probably yeah. find it on YouTube. You don't have to get the whole film, I don't think. But it's yeah. it's extra- it's David Bowie esque. It's you'll do a double take when you whatever the audio version of a double take is. It's awesome. I love that. I feel like right now, ten percent of my life is trying to find things for our three-year-old to watch mm-hmm. that I can tolerate having on in the background. Okay, so Peppa Pig won't cut it. Um. Not big fans of Peppa Pig. Uh, Shaun the Sheep, if any viewers are looking for these similar things, Shaun the Sheep is a wonderful sort of claymation-style show from the UK that is dialogue-free. Okay. And so you can sort of look at it, and it's you know, slapstick enough that it's, it's sort of enjoyable, um, but you avoid the loud noises, the earworm songs, mm-hmm. and, and the squeaky voices that so many kids' shows have. Yeah, the Wiggles is a bit much. Um, the old Wiggles we have on VHS, and actually those are pretty good. The new ones, I guess they're okay. Dinosaur Train was all right. Uh, it sounds like Shaun the Sheep is quite a bit like Pingu. Did you ever watch Pingu? I vaguely remember. I mean, what Shaun the Sheep really is, if you remember Wallace and Gromit yeah. from the, like, the 90s, it's the same production studio. It's actually a bit of a spinoff uh, from that. So that's very much what that is like. Um, and yeah, I will say the other one is you can find a lot of very old Sesame Street on uh, <laughs> YouTube. I highly recommend mm-hmm. this. Go back to like when we were kids in the early 80s, and it's much less annoying. There's no Elmo. So you can avoid the Elmo voice entirely by getting your Sesame Street on YouTube and going back far enough. Mm-hmm. That's a neat, uh, that's a hot tip. <laughs> <laughs> if nothing else, your listeners will yeah. have benefited from that. Yes, very good. Um, so here's a piece of Jurassic Park cast history that nobody knows except for maybe you. Um, when I was first considering producing a podcast about the novel Jurassic Park, I didn't have the first idea what to do, and I only knew one person who had anything to do with podcasts, and that was yep. Matt, and that was you. Do you remember me popping into your Facebook Messenger and, uh, with an odd inquiry about, uh, about podcasts? I mean, I, I guess I sort of forgotten it, but now you mention it, I do remember that you were you asked something. I forget even what the question was, but I, I have a vague memory of that conversation. Uh, I'm sure it was. Uh, it opened with a soft lead, and then had uh, built into a direct uh, inquiry, and then and then I think you're very forthcoming about uh, <clears throat> using Podbean. And uh, so if uh, if Podbean, Podbean's listening, Matt should receive a credit or a bonus or something <laughs> for the referral. <laughs> I, I, I wish it was. I wish I could say we were influential enough that I could really monetize mm-hmm. that uh, referral, but I, I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to. Uh, I think you had to go to your website and then click the link and use the promo code, and that, and then something like that ends up uh, being some sort of a fraction of a Bitcoin for you somewhere. Yeah, yeah, a fraction of a Bitcoin at some point. We'll, 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 right. well, I appreciate the tips, and uh, and you're probably regretting it now that you wound up having to be a guest here, so. <laughs> I mean, I'm enjoying it. Among other things, it got me to read the novel Jurassic Park, which I had never done before. That's and I quite a, enjoyed. That's so wild. All right, so we'll start with uh, podcasting. Um, the curious task I listen to because I like you, and I don't know tremendously much about libertarianism. Although I have listened to so many of the episodes that I should. Uh, <laughs> um, can you describe? I guess what the show is about and what your role is. What does an executive producer do uh, yeah. with the curious task? So the, the Curious Task is a podcast about politics, philosophy, and economics from a classical liberal perspective, uh, which is sort of what the organization, the Institute for Liberal Studies, is interested in, this sort of study and discussion 
based in classical liberalism, uh, which is a political philosophy that puts a very high degree on individual freedom and autonomy. Mm -hmm. So within that, we interview a, a variety of guests. Many of them are academics. Uh, we touch on uh, a lot of different topics. It's sort of an hour-long uh, conversational uh, uh, podcast format. Um, I will mention for people who might be sort of vaguely interested, but also like I, I'm you know, maybe not into so much the academic stuff, our most popular episode is number 100, where we talk to economist Tyler Cowen about why Scarborough, Ontario is one of the best ethnic dining experiences in the world. <laughs> So if you want some hot, hot dining tips, if nothing else, you can check out episode 100 for that. All right. um, and then as to the question of what an executive producer does, not a whole lot. So I have uh, some colleagues who do the, the interviewing, all the interview prep, the production, and everything that involves in getting it online and available for people to listen to. And I sort of pop in from time to time with ideas for guests or topics. Um, and uh, and sort of work at that very high level, which is my understanding, similar to movie credits. I don't have any movie industry experience, but my understanding is like the executive producer tag is mm. someone who maybe gave some money or is like a cousin of the director or yeah. something like that. And the actual producers are the people who do the work of getting you to see the movie. Yeah. Uh, so that feels a very appropriate description of my role on that podcast. <laughs> but uh, I'm sometimes a guest and uh, I'm biased. I think we produce a pretty good podcast. It's pretty cool, and I liken it to um, kind of like like when you have a news podcast. You just kind of come out of it saying, um, "I feel like I understand things a little bit more today about what's going on." And I remember, in particular, because you guys are based in Ottawa, um, and maybe not only because you're based in Ottawa, <clears throat> uh, the episodes that pertain to uh, the Emergencies Act I thought was very good, uh, and obviously some discussions on the uh, the, the the protests in in uh, in the winter outside of parliament uh i think we're very interesting in uh you get so many people that are are one-sided on it and they get so politicized over it i was very interesting to have more more of a fundamental question about how this all works and like yeah the emergencies act that that was crazy <laughs> yeah yeah good i mean i i think that's you know fair description of our, our goal is um, you know, to, to have people who listen to it think that they learn something, they understand something a little bit better. Uh, and even if it's maybe a position uh, the, the guest might take they don't agree with, mm. that they understand the position of that mm -hmm. guest. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's not so much a, an exercise in convincing as an exercise in understanding. Mm -hmm. there's, there's a whole lesson to be learned about um, listening that I think we all should listen to more. <laughs> um, so The Curious Task is an, a strange name to me. I suppose it has roots in classical documents like uh, like The Invisible Hand or The Silver Bullet or something like that. Where does The Curious Task find its roots? So it's more recent. The Curious Task is, uh, is a quote from the economist Friedrich Hayek, uh, who was born in, I think, 1899, thereabouts that time, and lived into the 1990s. Um, and he uh, once described economics uh, in the words, the curious task of economics is to, the curious task of economics <laughs> is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. And I was thinking as I thought about that, it actually I think it has some carryover to, to the novel Jurassic Park okay. uh, in terms of uh, Hammond's sort of hubris 
in designing the park. But Hayek was, you know, sort of to him that was a condemnation of, of central planning. Mm -hmm. The idea that you know exactly what society should look like, what should be produced, who should get certain things. And he considered economics not to be the very mathematical field that many of us now think of economics as. But this idea that the that uh, information is diffuse, lots of people know things, mm -hmm. and so rather than having someone in Ottawa deciding how many shoes of what style need to be sold in Vancouver, that information is instead you know in the head of a, someone who's an entrepreneur in Vancouver and is making or buying shoes and, and reselling them, um, and so you know Hayek uh, really you know a lot of his um, sort of intellectual project was critiquing central planning and what, and what he referred to as scientism, which again, I think plays actually quite well into this novel. Mm -hmm. The idea that we can use science to solve all of the problems mm -hmm. in society, uh, he rejected. And uh, you know, he was most intellectually active in the years after World War II. Um, and uh, there's a big planning push that comes out of the Second World War. That, okay, we had the government is in charge, you know, the American, uh, in particular, really just ramped up production. They nationalized all of these factories and industry, and they got the big job done, which was winning the war. Mm -hmm. Can we apply that sort of philosophy and exercise to the peace and actually just plan the economy that way? So you see, you know, in the UK, a lot of nationalizing of industries coming out after, after the Second World War, and Hayek was an opponent of those things. And so the, the curious task is our little homage to what I think is a, is a saying uh, that, that's got a lot to it. And uh, if people are interested in more, episode 40 is with Professor Pete Vetke. And we actually just ask him the question, what is the curious task of economics? Okay. He's a Hayek scholar who can answer a lot of those questions better than I could. Right on. That's so fascinating. So as you'd mentioned, uh, you had not read Jurassic Park in advance of my request to coming on the show, but you were interested all the same. What made you accept the invite to, to come on the show and then go read the novel? Why yeah, did you decide well, that was something you wanted to do? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I rarely turn down a chance to be uh, to be interviewed. So uh, whenever <laughs> I can, I'm very happy to come and talk, and especially on podcasts. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm interested in how other people are doing podcasts. Uh, I'll admit there's some self-interest here that one way to pick up new podcast listeners is by going on podcasts. Mm -hmm. So pretty much any time I can, I accept an invite to come on someone else's podcast. I know they'll mention that we have one and we can talk about it <laughs> a little bit. Um, but also, you know, I, I hadn't read uh, Jurassic Park. I had read some other Michael Crichton novels. It's mm -hmm. almost a little weird, but I think if I had read this, you know, when I was 14, I really would have enjoyed it. I'm not entirely sure why I, I didn't. Um, but uh, but I enjoyed the book, and uh, you know, I will say I enjoyed the book far more than I enjoyed the movie. I think it's a, it's a great novel, and at the risk of offending the host here, the movie's so-so. <laughs> special effects are great, but a lot of the rest of it, I could take it or leave it. Well, what I can fully appreciate is that um, there's something special about reading it for the first time, but also reading it for the first time but not being a kid. And you've got like these fresh but also mature eyes that you can look at the novel with that I don't know a lot of people can do. So I'm fascinated to hear what you think. That, that it, like, I can't imagine seeing Jurassic Park in 1993 as an adult. And maybe, maybe we look at it with less uh, joy. Right? Like maybe, maybe its, it's warts are far more evident to, uh, to an adult when they watch that movie versus every kid came out of the theater, you know, with. Uh, wishing that it could be a dinosaur. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like you just walked out of the theater with your arms crunched up like a, a tyrannosaurus and say, I'm going to be a dinosaur now. Um, 
or maybe that was just me, but <laughs> but to, to be an adult, I guess adults could come out of the theater that way too. Uh, so, with like with like your your first impressions on the novel, were there surprises or 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 just problems that you saw in it? Yeah, I mean, I guess you know, it, I, I, there's a lot more depth yeah. than I thought. So I will say that right off the bat that when you said I'm doing a podcast on Jurassic Park. I thought, well, I could see how you could do like an episode of a podcast to talk about <laughs> Jurassic Park, but to do a whole the whole podcast always about Jurassic Park. But then reading it, I realized there's all of these little things that you can go deeper in. I've listened to some of the back episodes and seen how you guys have done that. I, I think it's really interesting. The thing probably that struck me the most was the way that Michael Crichton puts in what I would consider a fair bit of commentary that I agree with. Um, the stuff about chaos theory, the problems about uh, trying to plan a very complex system. Um, and yet, he starts off with the, the introduction, which I think is perhaps what made you think of talking to me about this, where he's calling for, for more regulation mm -hmm. for these things, as if the fact that if there had just been a government department that had been <laughs> in charge of overseeing Jurassic Park, then Hammond would have avoided all of the problems. Whereas to me, all of the problems that happened could have very easily happened in you know a government facility or one that was you know regulated by the government. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. Any characters that jumped to mind that uh, would have been like you go, hey, that guy wasn't in the movie. Who's this guy? Well, so I just think, so I saw the movie not in theaters, mm -hmm. um, but probably shortly after it came out, uh, you know, on VHS at the time at the video rental store, and it didn't make a big impression on me. I mean, I thought. Again, I, I think I thought the special effects were good, but I would have been about 15 at that time. So perhaps just a little too old to just be entirely absorbed mm -hmm. by cool dinosaur special effects. I mean, if I think if I'd been eight years old, I probably would have just been like, oh my God, the dinosaurs are so cool. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but the, the rest of the movie didn't leave a big impression on me. So I didn't remember much about the characters except I did have in my memory what they looked like and mm -hmm. who played them. And so I was interested in, in, when I started reading the novel, there's certain characters who I don't think I knew by name who played them. But like when I started reading the Ian Malcolm character, mm -hmm. I'm like, oh yeah, this has got to be the Jeff Goldblum yeah. character. <laughs> uh, and uh, Nedry, the, the computer uh, programmer, right? He's um, Wayne Knight, but I just think of Newman yeah, from yeah. Seinfeld. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is like you know, the Newman character. And so I don't know if Crichton you know, maybe thought of actors who should play these characters, because I know it was turned into a movie very quickly after publication. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I sort of wonder, did he show up to Steven Spielberg's office and say, yeah, I've got an actor who I think would be perfect for this, uh, this role? Or was that just someone else in the casting department? Mm -hmm. But I found that very interesting. Grant is, is portrayed, you know, bearded, wearing a Hawaiian shirt, cowboy boots, uh, <laughs> uh, barrel-chested fella. Uh, he's certainly different uh, than, than what's portrayed in the movie. And I, I wouldn't take anything away from Sam Neill because I think he was tender enough with the role that it worked out just fine. But, uh, yeah, he's portrayed different. And then I think Malcolm is supposed to be very tall and bald. <laughs> Oh, okay, so I didn't even catch up on the baldness, but I, I guess probably it was the all dressed in black. Yeah, yeah. Which I feel like that matches my mental image of Jeff Goldblum outside of dress. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so, so that one really jumped out, and then the the slobbishness of uh, of, of Nedry. 
uh, I, I thought was interesting. And I will say, just, you know, Malcolm, I found quite an interesting uh, character because of his sort of criticisms of, you know, you can't plan this thing, mm -hmm. it's too difficult. Um, the, the chaos theory, uh, I didn't really know very much about chaos theory before. I've tried to read a little bit online about it since. I still don't think I understand it very well. No. But the idea of unpredictability in a system, again, fits with some of my other interests mm -hmm. in terms of, uh, you know, I mean, the, the debates that Hayek was in were in part things like, okay, we have these very powerful computers now, and if not now, then soon, we can just punch all the economic needs of a country into a computer. <laughs> and it will tell us how many running shoes to make and what sizes they should be and how much they should cost and where they will be sold. Um, and especially in the Soviet Union, this is a, a, a way that they imagined you know, an economy could be run. Um, and maybe Hayek is sort of there, Ian Malcolm off the side going, it's too complex, it'll mm -hmm. never work, you can't plan <laughs> it this way. That's right. It should at least be an experiment. It shouldn't be this uh, delivery. They, they shouldn't say, we got all the answers. They should be experimenting to seeing what works and what doesn't, as opposed to, uh, like, that seems like the scientific process. They skipped a step. This went right to the, you know, our conclusions are, are what we expected, and there was no experiment involved at all. So I, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, that, in a way, that's sort of the way that people like Hayek would think of a competitive market economy, a capitalist economy, if you like. That there's constantly this ex these experiments going on. You know, someone decides to open that shoe store in Vancouver, mm -hmm. and maybe they've got a good idea of what shoes people in the area want and how to get them in the store, and that experiment is successful. But the lesson there is not that, okay, you take that store and you put them in every city on, on every street corner across Canada because it's particular to that time and place. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, their business is constantly going out of business because they were wrong about what it is that people wanted. And sometimes it's through no fault of their own. Um, you know, a lot of places went bankrupt during COVID, not because they made a mistake, except mm -hmm. that it was just that the societal and market conditions uh, were not what they expected to be. Uh, I mentioned Pete Batke a few minutes ago. Um, he wrote his dissertation on the Soviet Union and uh, has something like uh, a fact that more businesses went bankrupt in New York City in 1978 than in the entire history of the Soviet Union. Wow. That's... And so it's this constant experimentation, which I think people like Hayek would describe as part of a vibrant economy that is not going to be present in that uh, that sort of planned economy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you're absolutely right. I approached you um, <laughs> to be on the podcast because of the first chapters in the in the book, and uh, uh, there's you know so much in conversation about intrusive governmental agencies, frustrating regulations and approvals. And all kinds of problems that businesses face getting their products to market, and that uh, that feels like a libertarian perspective to that uh, there should be more freedoms involved. And uh, but at the same time, the novel opens with you know these accusations in the introduction saying that you know unbridled capitalism is going to literally change the face of the earth for the worse. So uh, yeah. you know the capitalist in this novel is shown in kind of a poor light. Hammond isn't a hero by any stretch of the means, and it's a you know it's a common sense. To do frivolous things with science that because ethical things are too much of a hassle and it's too regulated it's too hard to make money uh doing important things so <laughs> it's 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 a fantasy that, that that doesn't really if you think about it too hard it doesn't work but it works for the novel but um 
I guess from your perspective, what uh, what's an economic look at what's being argued for in the novel uh, look like to you? Yeah, I mean, it, in some ways, this novel feels a bit like one of those ink blots where you look at it and you know what you see reveals more about yourself than what's actually in the uh, in the ink blot. Um, so, like you, you mentioned, the part about not doing the thing that is good, mm -hmm. which is uh, Hammond sort of says it would be silly to try and like cure cancer because if you could, you'll be forced to give it away for free, and so you do something like build a dinosaur park because then you won't <laughs> be forced to give it away for free. Naturally, yes. And I think Crichton writes that as a condemnation of capitalism, mm -hmm. and this is what we get with the capitalist economy. But I read it as a condemnation of government, right? Mm -hmm. If we let the market play its course, there's a huge financial reward to curing cancer. When the government comes in and wants to punish the person who has cured cancer by taking away the profits that they would have earned, that's a problem with government. Now, I don't think it's the case that like someone could cure cancer and is not doing it because they're worried about what's going to happen with the government, you know, making them give it away. But it, I think it does sort of reduce the incentives on the on the on the margins. Um, I, I think I've read some things about how uh, you know vaccine technology was underinvested in in the years leading up to COVID. Now I think there's probably a, a lot more investment in vaccine development than there was. But leading up to that, there was this idea that if you had a vaccine uh, for a disease, especially in the in the third world, that you would be pressured to give it away, which is you know, what we saw a lot with things like medication for AIDS and HIV. You make a breakthrough and then there's just this massive both government and uh, and social pressure mm -hmm. that it's very expensive. People in Africa who need it can't afford it. And so you've got to give it away for free or at a very low cost. And if you're the CEO of a pharmaceutical company, you know, it's nice to do good things for people, but you need to make money mm -hmm. to stay in business. And so not that you like sit on a cure for cancer, but maybe you just don't look at it as closely and spend as much time on it as you might. So I think Hammond makes a really interesting point. But to me, the point that ends up being made is the exact opposite from what I think Crichton intends when he writes that. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. The Rorschach analogy is fascinating. I like that. <laughs> yeah. So furthermore, in the novel, as a synopsis, uh, the, the introduction is an essay by Crichton that outlines that biotechnology and genetic engineering have been rushed with furious haste uh, and for profits, that their goals there are always to make money. And I recall that many of these arguments were being made as the internet was coming on board, that the internet was like this wild west, a new frontier, and they were they're going to need new laws, but they didn't know what they were going to be because they didn't know how the, the internet was going to operate. And like geographically, the laws of the land didn't necessarily apply to where the websites were, so like... <laughs> the Cayman Islands or the Swiss bank accounts uh, was the internet. The internet could be anywhere. And so I think that he was maybe digging into that atmosphere. Like we don't know what to expect, how to regulate it. Uh, I guess you just have to have faith in the, in the, in the mor morality of people who are operating, but we know that they're, they're rushing things and we know that they're uh, driven just by making money. So I guess that's to think that those are their only ambitions. <laughs> And that they're being frivolous. Those are the three arguments. And I think when he describes the biotech world, he's describing John Hammond as well. These are yeah. his, he's the personification of that almost perfectly. I don't know. And we're kind of in that realm now with cryptocurrencies where it's still, I would say, broadly misunderstood by most, including me. And, uh, but out there and running around and, uh, and, and with consequences. Like, um, 
it sounds like people are, are losing quite a bit of money investing in these things. Uh, but at the same time, I guess it sounds like people are getting very rich too. I don't know. But um, how, when you get into a new realm like this, what is the best process to, by which you begin to provide the oversight or the regulations? Um, do you just listen to your heart or like what, what's the best way to go about uh, entering into these new worlds? Yeah, well, I mean, I would I would have a point of view on that. It's probably different from most of your listeners that I would say, you know, either you don't you should not regulate at all or have a very light sort of regulatory mm -hmm. touch on these things. I mean, I think it's interesting um, that uh, that Crichton is writing, you know, just before the Internet becomes a daily force in our lives. Mm -hmm. And yet he says in that introduction that biotechnology will have a greater effect on our daily lives than computers. Mm -hmm. Now, if we just think of the internet as you know, an add-on to computers, to me that seems obviously false right now. I mean, we do see a lot of stuff with, with biotech and maybe some of the food in your kitchen. Maybe you go, will go to the doctor and you'll get some medicine that's related to this uh, you know, biotech um, stuff. But the internet, I mean, we're only having this conversation because of the internet, the mm -hmm. medium of podcasts only exists because of the internet. Um, I don't know about you, but I feel like uh, with us, almost every day a box shows up at the door. Uh, you know, we got our toilet paper and our dish soap from Amazon now because it's so easy to just dis uh, subscribe and, and mm -hmm. deliver it once a month or whatever we need. Um, so Crichton is expressing, first of all, this prediction about the impact of biotechnology being greater than computers, which I think is wrong. He also, you know, I think writes Jurassic Park as a bit of a warning, perhaps, mm -hmm. about the problems that these fields are unregulated. I don't know a lot about the specific regulations about biotechnology. I mean, it seems to me that it is probably a field with a lot of regulations, <laughs> but in some ways, maybe not. Um, and, uh, and yet, I don't think Crichton's fears have sort of come to pass. Um, you know, I don't want to get into conspiracy theories, but I think there's a chance that COVID is a lab leak from China. Mm -hmm. um, not to say that it's probable, uh, it's entirely possible that we will never know for sure either way. If we ever do know, then I think it will, will be some time before now, before that comes to light, but it's at least a possibility. And if it is the case, then it was not a lab leak from some private company that was irresponsibly doing something. Mm -hmm. It was a lab leak that was under the supervision of the biggest government, one of the biggest governments in the world, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea that we will have these horrible consequences if we don't have enough regulations on biotech, I would just, you know, if Crichton was still alive to ask him, I would be interested to say, you know, do you think you were wrong about your prediction? Because I look around and I don't see any disastrous consequences coming from biotech. I mean, we've got, um, you know, new foods that can be very important. In some cases when it comes to farming, um, some are a bit frivolous. You know, you can buy these like grapes that taste like cotton candy at the store right now, which seems strange to me. I haven't tried those. There's probably <laughs> biotech involved in there somewhere. Uh, but I would describe most biotech that I see as either very beneficial or you know, sort of neutral. Mm. Um, and I'm just not aware, maybe you know, of, of examples of, of cases where this has gone wrong. I don't. I The only thing I can think of, I think there's a risk. I suppose like in the in the analog of a, of a viral leak that something could escape a lab and affect the food supply or affect, uh, 
you know, extinct a species and disrupt a food chain or, or you know, be very contagious and, and, and harm a lot of people. So I, I suppose that there's some possibilities, but like, yeah, it seems like people got like take proper precautions. They, people, that the, the responsibility of handling these things isn't being taken whimsically. Even, yeah. even if the concept of what you're doing may have been whimsical, it seems like people are pretty strict about the consequences of being responsible. It feels that way. And it seems like there's the, the taboo that you don't clone people. <laughs> that seems to be the one thing that they've just universally, unless there's some Cayman Island where the rules don't apply and they have a bunch of clone people over there, I don't know. But uh, that seems to be one that the world has agreed. We're, if we if we start cloning things, we're not going to clone people. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. Like we can we can imagine things that would go bad, right? Mm-hmm. Some ones messing around with you know viruses seem like a you know, very obvious candidate now. Something gets out, something something goes wrong, and yet it hasn't happened. And uh, this is something that I see a lot of times in government regulations. Uh, you know, government will pass a regulation or a law, and they will say, "Well, we're doing this in case this bad thing happens." Mm-hmm. Which can be reasonable, but we should always be acknowledging the cost of these laws and regulations, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and thinking, okay, are we actually? Is there a danger that the bad thing might happen, or is this just something that we're that we're sort of imagining? Mm-hmm. Um, I, which I don't think we do. I don't think we do enough um, to to give one example, um, and, and perhaps a fairly minor one. But uh, you know, it's back to school season recently. You probably saw Facebook friends. Maybe you did this uh, with uh, with a, your child holding a sign mm-hmm. that says, "I'm this year's old. I'm in grade, you know, whatever at this school. These are the things I like." And, and some police departments were posting a warning about doing this mm-hmm. and saying, "You know what? An abductor could use this information to find your child and then." take their love of dinosaurs to lure them into the the van and, and abduct them, right? And like, yeah, we can imagine that might happen. But I look at that, and my first thought is like, has this ever happened? <laughs> because almost all child abductions are non-custodial parents. Mm-hmm. You know, people, and sometimes there are tragic results. But overwhelmingly, when a child is kidnapped, it's because someone who loves them doesn't get to see them as much as, as they want to mm-hmm. because of a relationship that's fallen apart and they just want to spend time with their children. So in a world where children are being kidnapped as a result of back-to-school posts, then maybe we uh, pass an advisory, maybe there's even a regulation that says you can't make back-to-school posts anymore because they're so dangerous. (laughs) But I don't think we live in that world. Uh, I've never actually read about a case where a child was abducted in that manner. Mm -hmm. Let's let's hope that doesn't happen. But yeah, I recall too, like... um, Put your name, put your kids' names on everything, so that when they they can get it back, like if they ever drop it somewhere. But also, don't put their name their name available so people can see it because they get abducted. So it's right. a bit of both, right? <laughs> uh, which that sounds like laws to me. <laughs> they always seem to say one thing and not another, which I guess keeps lawyers very rich. Um, I feel like we've moved out of a world where where it used to be, you know, buyer beware, do your research take a lot of uh, information, compare notes and stuff like that, get the reputation of a business before you buy anything, buyer beware. Whereas it seems like now um, you buy it and you expect that it's going to be exactly what you want and you don't feel like it's possibly not going to be any good unless you get it from the dollar store and you're like, nah, it's just a dollar store, what do you expect? But like, and we even got like the um, the consumer report segments on the news where like somebody did them dirty and, and the guy gets with a microphone and he's like, open your door and talk to me about this problem. Um, yeah. And we have, you know, the snitch line at the Better Bureau, Better Business Bureau. 
consuming, buying, purchasing, is it regulations that have changed it into that? Or have people just got more faith in the system or the means of production has changed? Like what's, what do you suppose is the reason that we've moved away from the, the snake oil salesman to, um, I expect I'm getting a, a, exactly what I want when I buy something. Yeah, I, I think there's a, a accurate description there that uh, a lot of things that at one point we would have done ourselves or belonged to some sort of group or association to do, we now look to government to do. Um, and sometimes that means we don't pay enough attention as uh, the way that we should because there's uh, we think that this will be handled by regulation. Um, I think a lot of times it leads to us getting sort of substandard things. So, you know, you and I have lived our entire lives in a society in which healthcare is provided for by the government. Almost all education is provided by the government. There's a very large degree of, um, you know, social safety net, welfare provided by the government. There's also a large dissatisfaction with how these things are done, especially now. If we look at the past two years mm -hmm. of the pandemic, you can hardly pick up a newspaper if you were so old fashioned that you would pick up a newspaper without reading uh, about, you know, problems in the healthcare system, problems in education, with the parents unhappy with what's going, how the schools are treating the pandemic or how the uh, teachers are unhappy, um, complaints that the social payments that are made to people who can't work uh, are not uh, appropriate, not enough, not keeping up with inflation, going to the wrong people, whatever it is, and yet I think that there's a general sort of societal attitude. Well, you know, that's the way things are. Um, you know, the government has to do these things. Also, they don't do a very good job, but what could we possibly do about it? And as a libertarian, to me, this is kind of frustrating because I live this my like embodiment of the complaints, right? Mm -hmm. The reason I don't want education and healthcare run by the government is not because I don't want poor people to have them because I believe everybody would get more and better of those things if we took them out of government hands. Mm -hmm. And there was a time, you know, when these things were done um, without government. You know, education and healthcare existed before the state provided them, though I think for many of us, it's hard to imagine how that could be the case. And then this extends to things like consumer goods and, and, and regulations. Uh, we just imagine that everything is being checked out and you know they wouldn't allow them to sell it to us if it wasn't safe sometimes that's true sometimes that's not true um there's a, a journalist named john stossel uh who some people may know he was on 2020 for a number of years um and he was a, an award-winning consumer reporter made his reputation by you know dropping off a tv that was not broken Again, very old-fashioned concept, right. the idea of taking a TV to a repairman to fix. But they would take like a working TV, they would drop it off, they'd come and pick it up, um, and uh, and the repair guy would say, yeah, I had to fix the whatever it was, <laughs> you got to pay me 75 bucks. And they did this to like 10 TV repair stores around town, and then went to confront them on camera about you know, lying about how they fixed the TV. Um, and Stossel got so famous uh, and well-known for doing this, that he would get calls the week after one of his specials aired by politicians. He's an American, so usually Congress people, say, you know, I'm horrified by these unscrupulous TV repairmen, and so we're gonna pass a regulation to monitor TV repair mm -hmm. industry. Um, and what Stossel noticed was that, you know, you never got rid of the scam artists. You pass these regulations, now the honest TV repair people have to 
get licensed or have government inspections or whatever it is. And then the guys who are scammers just move on to a new scam. And so the regulations are never able to accomplish their stated goals. And we just pile up more and more of these as we go along the way. Mm-hmm. It was a very long answer to your question. <laughs> they, no, they never seem to take laws away, do they? They never seem to no. take anything back. You still can't drag a dead mule down Young Street on Sunday or something like that. Cause, exactly. Because <laughs> what? Wait, are you going to suddenly let people do that now? <laughs> can't take that rule out. Um, so we do get... Uh, Hammond evading the government as best as he can. That's why he sets up on a leased island outside the coast of uh, Costa Rica. Uh, but the EPA is still interested in catching him. I mean, we know the EPA is the villains of Ghostbusters and the villain in the Simpsons movie. The Environmental Protection Agency is a curse on the American uh, working man and, uh, and probably other 80s movies as well. Um, so he, they were concerned. There's, quote, no evidence of Hammond doing any wrong. They're just suspicious, and so they're snooping after him. Uh, and the, but they're they're pretty clear that he's quote evading the law, and there must be military concerns. Why else would he need supercomputers and gene sequences, or sophisticated things like that? So uh, they believe that these things are all dangerous in the wrong hands, and so the government is going to go and decide that uh, whether his hands are wrong or not. Um, and for what it's worth, like them snooping around did in a way get the get the security report uh, to be, I guess, moving along. So uh, Gennaro brings all the, the inspectors to the island to do the safety inspection. Uh, sort of, this kind of pressed their hand to do it. So I guess there was something good being done there. But like, um, in, again, in a world where a guy's doing something recklessly, if it's not the government that's looking over him, what is the best function of, of assembling watchdogs or things like that when there is a concern that should you know be addressed? Yeah, uh, the watchdog, you know, one is going to be going to be tricky, right? Now, maybe you should have some sort of like, you know, industry group, um, you know, Cloners International or something. They would have a big conference, and and they would have some sort of self-governing uh, body. Uh, one, one thing I think is probably important to mention that is, uh, as a libertarian, my position is not that if we take away the regulations everything will work perfectly and there'll never be any problems. <laughs> still, of course, we live in a world of imperfect humans and, and there will be will be problems. Uh, you know, the sort of question is, well, you know, did the EPA really, you know, make things better? Um, is there a system that would be effective at, at providing um, some sort of oversight or, or governance? And maybe the most you know effective oversight in Hammond's case is his investors. Mm-hmm. They are now they, they seem to be sort of triggered by the investigations of the EPA. Mm-hmm. Um, but but perhaps that the, the lawyers, the investors who are getting nervous is, is the oversight. And you, you mentioned sort of experimentation uh, a while ago and I drew the analogy of like failed businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say that in in Hammond's case, it's very largely you know the fact that the it goes wrong, but like he pays the ultimate price in the book, mm-hmm. right? You know he is you know hoist on his own petard. I think is the the line from uh, from from Shakespeare <laughs> that like his horrible experiment gone awry. Yes, it, you know hurts and kills other people, um, but uh, but also uh, you know he is the the victim mm-hmm. of it. Um, maybe that is sort of the the, the at least in a literary sense the the appropriate outcome. Um, that he, he is the victim of his own hubris. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. He does get, uh, there is some poetic justice there. Because, and the, and Crichton makes sure that you read it that way because just before he meets his end, he's saying, he's doubling down. He's like, I'm going to build another. No, I'll build three more. And I'm going to have better people. Everybody I had sucked. 
Yeah. yeah. Oh, it could be even richer. And then he gets yeah. eaten. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Frightening he, tree. He hasn't, he hasn't learned his lesson, right? And right. It's, you know, he's a fictional character, so I, I, I don't think we can say whether that is realistic or not, um, because that's just part of who he is in the novel. Mm-hmm. But I will say, in a sort of real-world, sort of entrepreneurial sense, you have people who make a mistake, and then they make the mistake five more times. Mm-hmm. Um, and those people just tend not to be successful. The entrepreneurs that we know, I mean, you know, look at Steve, Steve Jobs, uh, all the mistakes that, that he made with Apple, and yet I guess learned from them in some way to make Apple into one of the biggest companies in the world. Uh, I was once at a conference, and um, Jimmy Wales, I think is his name, the guy who started Wikipedia, um, talks, and Wikipedia is a very uh, sort of, in a sense, thing uh, that Hayek would approved of, this sort of spontaneous order of just letting like thousands of people write down their thoughts. And you might think, no, we need experts to say what should be in there. But it turns out you got a pretty good product, not a perfect product, but a pretty good product by just sort of crowdsourcing mm-hmm. this thing. But before Wikipedia, Jimmy Wales had like a similar project in which he would pay experts to write these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and apparently he would pay like $10,000 for someone to write, you know, the entry on dinosaurs or something like that. It was a complete failure. But he claimed that he kept these entries that he had commissioned in his like nightstands. So we could read them every day in an attempt to get back some of the money that he had spent on them. And I don't know if that was true or, or just a funny story, but it was a funny story. I've read Jurassic Park a lot of times, but not, I don't think $10,000 worth of times. <laughs> you have to read those every night, I think, for a while. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we see that Hammond, again, leaves the States to escape the, the rules and the oversights. Do you think that uh, that's happening a lot? We hear about brain drain, where people are lured away because they aren't getting what they need or would they feel what they should get? Do you, do you find that there are a lot of people that are escaping? Like, I, uh, Is it just monetary, or are there regulations you think that are stopping people, maybe moving pe- businesses away? It sounds like taxation is the major factor that leads people away, but uh, are there other rules and regulations? I, I know, what did I just hear? I was reading, so Harvard won a lawsuit to patent a cancer, uh, especially cancerous mouse called the Onco mouse. They developed a mouse that gets gets cancer, and so they can test cancer stuff on it. And they patented patented it. I can't say that word. <laughs> the mouse and yeah. the U.S. let them, but Canada doesn't let them in, so they can't do the those that research in Canada for some reason. So they said the animal itself can't be. You can patent the process and the methodology, but the the animal itself is not. A, product you can't do that so canada didn't let them do it are there examples where people are moving away because regulations are stopping them from doing things i suppose like labor laws maybe yeah yeah i I, would say we see this all the time right you know anytime a company sets up a uh a business somewhere um especially you know something like amazon where a few years ago we saw them building you know this great big um secondary headquarters um, and all the governments were falling all over themselves to give them tax breaks and things like that, which I would certainly not support. Um, but that is a result of, you know, companies will look at where to go. Um, people look at where to go. Uh, taxes, like you say, are going to be a big thing. Regulations are definitely going to impact things. Look at, you know, the cannabis industry, which exploded. 
a few years ago. It was yeah. in Canada, not in the U.S., because you couldn't legally grow cannabis that's right, that's in right. the U.S. I, th I think now you, maybe you can in some states, although it's still federally illegal. So maybe you can't. Yeah, I'm you, not sure. Some states, yes, but I don't think you can cross the border. There's a bunch. Yeah, it's un, It's still complicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, 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 one, one other example of that would be the fact that uh, when my dad moved to Canada in 1976, um, Montreal was the business capital of Canada, the biggest city in Canada. Um, and businesses fled there not so much because of taxes and regulations, but because of political uncertainty mm -hmm. that uh, that Quebec was going to separate. And Quebec separated, they want you know Royal Bank still wanted to be in Canada, not in some other country. So of course, they kept branches in in Montreal and Quebec, but they moved their headquarters to Toronto, as many big corporations did. So yeah, people will always, uh, economists will say people respond to incentives. So when corporations are just sort of masses of people, um, and they will respond to laws, regulations, incentives of any sort, uh, and you can never get away from that. That's so fascinating. Um, the episode of the podcast that just came out this morning, The Curious Task, I forget the name of the your, your great guest, but he was talking about how uh, bu businesses and the economy sort of serve as a representation of people. It's fascinating that they businesses represent kind of a macro perspective on the behavior of people. So what they buy and how they how they spend their money and stuff like that shows who they are in a way. And uh, yeah, it's so it connects so well with what exactly you're talking about. That these these regulations and stuff like that change people, not just businesses. It's interesting. Yep, absolutely, and that's kind of, there's this idea that you know you businesses or government can pass these laws and then they will just have the desired effect, and of course they do not. I mentioned marijuana. I mean, drug policy is a is a great example of this. The fact when you make drugs illegal, you have all of these things. You bring criminals into the drug trade. You affect the types of drugs that are are being produced, um, and any government regulation or law is going to uh, affect people's behavior in some way. So have you guys had, I don't know how famous this guy is, but it looks like he's been around for a long, long time. And I think that a lot of the concerns that Crichton employed writing this book were based on uh, an economist named Jeremy Rifkin, who apparently is uh, an advocate in the States who is really against the use of new biopatents and biotech and farming. And he founded the Foundation of Economic Trends and spearheaded a coalition of groups who feared that... Um, biotech would be you know the end of the natural world and when i looked him up i thought he was just like some like i don't mean any disrespect just a, an angry farmer who who was like you can't do this this is my land but uh he sounds like an extraordinarily well-organized uh <laughs> economist who's, who's published all kinds of stuff and um uh, and of course he is why <laughs> why, would he, why would he be something other than that so uh i i feel like he was really worried about these new fields and there must be a lot of anxiety for people who, who know that the scam artist is there that they are just moving from one to the next and and you got to kind of like i don't know beat the rug to get them out of there <laughs> what's the safest way to enter into a new market or I, like you're right with cannabis stores they popped up fast <laughs> and people were whole hog right into that like let's get we got we have a small town we might have five dispensaries in town it's unbelievable What's the safest way to enter into a, into a new market or explore these? Is it just experimentation, or I, I would say yeah. And uh, you know, it's I, same here. I'm in Ottawa, and the number of cannabis stores. I, I can only think that there's going to be. I think it's already started, but there seems like there needs to be a big correction in the market. <laughs> like we have too many of these, yeah. right? 
Um, but it's it's really interesting to me the idea that you know for most of our lives uh, cannabis was this drug that was so dangerous that we had to stop people from having it and when people tried to sell it they needed to be put in jail mm -hmm. of course that wasn't my belief as a as a libertarian it wasn't a lot of people's belief but as a general society that was the law and a lot of people had that belief and then all of a sudden it becomes a thing where you know we need the provincial government to be buying and growing and selling cannabis which of course they ended up doing a bad job of um and i would say this is you know part of my concern going back to things like like regulation that you have uh, this industry where all of a sudden you go from banning it to having this you know regulated in some ways supported and subsidized kind of way and i would lean much more to like well just like let people do what they want to do as long as they're not like harming other people mm -hmm. so you know people want to grow and sell marijuana that's fine you know, maybe you have a labeling requirement so people know what they're consuming mm -hmm. that doesn't seem unreasonable um although there's going to be problems with how it's actually done most likely um things like bitcoin uh which i wish i'd gotten into when i first heard about it <laughs> i was at a conference with a bitcoin atm 10 years ago and they were 30 dollars a bitcoin oh yeah um but i also just didn't and still don't really understand how it works so i, I missed uh making my my fortune that way uh there's a lot of talk about you know sort of regulating bitcoin i don't know how that would work I just yeah. want to like let people do the things that they want to do. So I know people who love Bitcoin and think it's the best thing in the world. I think they should mm. be free to buy it. I know a lot of people who think it's a scam and have no interest in it. Of course, they should be free not to buy it <laughs> and not to have it. Yeah. Uh, and the idea that all of these things, the government needs to tell us what is safe, what is unsafe, what is a good investment, what is a bad investment. Mm -hmm. I'm just you know, very cynical about it, as you would expect. I think uh, in NFTs, non-fungible, whatever there are, I don't, I don't get it. I guess it's very similar to Bitcoin, but it, it's a picture instead of a <laughs> well. I, value. Mean, I think it's a bit different. So without getting too wonky, so so my under, the part of Bitcoin I do understand is that it solves the problem in which when we use government currencies, the government can always print more money, mm -hmm. um, and we're you know that's what we're seeing now with inflation, which we all thought was a relic of our youth, uh, those of us who are you know, of our age, um, and, and is now back and. Um, you know, Canada and the U.S. have been pretty good about not printing too much money, but countries like Zimbabwe and Venezuela, huge problem. Mm -hmm. So Bitcoin solves that by making it so that no one has the ability to print more money. So I totally get the reasons that Bitcoin could be a good idea. Mm -hmm. And if I could you know, send you some Bitcoin and you could send me some Jurassic Park paraphernalia that you were selling, or whatever it was, it's a very easy way to way to transact. So I I see what the point is, um, and because there's a limited supply, if it catches on at all and stays the thing, it could become very valuable. NFTs, I'm much more cynical on. <laughs> I guess I see like a small amount of collector value, right? Like if you could get the NFT for the scene in Jurassic Park, whatever your favorite scene is when the t-rex like looks in the car or something mm -hmm. like that right i can imagine that you might pay like a couple hundred bucks for something and then you know it's 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 i mean it's um i don't know if you follow football at all the green bay packers are an unusual sports team in that they sell shares and anyone can buy shares they're owned by the community you pay a couple hundred bucks for a share in the green bay packers 
and it's largely meaningless except you get to put it on a frame on your wall mm -hmm. and say I'm a part owner of NFL team and that's what it is <laughs> so I can imagine that you might pay like a couple hundred bucks to hang that picture of the T-Rex looking in the car on the wall and say you know lots of people could print this image but I own the authentic original image in mm -hmm. some way and that little you know sequence of numbers at the bottom proves it as a sort of like you know gimmicky thing I get it but I want to hear about NFTs selling for millions of dollars. I'm like, how how would that ever be supported? <laughs> so I don't want to make any bold predictions of Bitcoin, but I think it's at least possible that Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency does stick around over the long term. Mm -hmm. I cannot comprehend any way in which NFTs are anything more <laughs> than, you know, like look back as a version of the tulip mania in Holland. <laughs> right on. Um... Well, I think we're just running out of time here. It's been awesome having you. Um, I think the lawmakers in us now have decided that if we had just made it illegal to be eaten by a dinosaur, that it would have solved the problem. So coming out of Jurassic Park, I think we should now lobby to have it illegal for di to be eaten by a dinosaur. And therefore, that crime will stop dinosaurs from eating us. There we go. We, we should threaten stiff jail sentences and put the dinosaurs in jail. Have you been eaten by a dinosaur? That's a crime. You're going to jail for that, buddy. <laughs> a stiff sentence. All right. Uh, I, I got to say, the, the idea of dinosaur jail, where all the dinosaurs who ate people, and we locked them in cages, <laughs> and then, like, Hammond's grandson is the warden of Jurassic Jail. <laughs> I think there's a movie in that. Oh, my goodness. You're right. It makes more sense than Dominion. Okay. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for, for being a guest. It was wonderful having you and uh, catching up again. This is awesome. I love the Curious Task. I hope everybody goes and takes a peek at it. It was fun. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed the excuse to uh, to read the novel, and I'm going to continue tuning into this podcast and getting my weekly dose of dinosaur news. Well, that is more than I could have asked for. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. All right. See you, Matt. All right. A big thank you to Matt for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Matt. I really appreciate it. Uh, the text this week is another chapter called Control, spanning from pages 160 to 166. In a synopsis, park officials believe the eggshells are avian, whereas Grant and Malcolm agree they are dinosaur eggshells. To prove his point, Malcolm leads Wu through a series of data like Procomsignathus height charts and an overall animal count to demonstrate conclusively that multiple species are breeding in the park and have been for ages. Wu can't believe it and is terrified. If the animals are breeding, it calls into question every security measure they've put in place. Grant concludes that there are seven nesting sites on the island. Characters. John Hammond. Hammond believes the dinosaur eggshell must be a bird egg at first, and is astonished when the dinosaur count reveals that there are more dinosaurs. He's outraged. His voice rises as Malcolm starts asking the computer to find more and more dinosaurs on 162, and it burns Hammond. He hates it that Malcolm has figured his park out in front of him. He tries to blame Nedry, but Nedry isn't to blame. He believes the animals can't breed, so the tally must be counting, like, field mice or something, but Hammond is so stubborn. When the tally reports an error because it's failed to find 300 animals, thus only 292, or dozens of new animals that are unknown to the park management, he somehow feels vindicated, if only for a moment, on 164. He's such a stubborn loser. Then after all the dinosaurs are shown to be breeding, and in fact there are dozens of wild raptors loose in the park, Hammond downplays it like, it's not that bad. He stupidly believes on 166 because there are mostly only small increases in a couple categories, so no big deal. Then, when Wu starts to freak out, Hammond flatly says, Well, Henry, this is all your fault. It means you screwed up, he says on 166. Dr. Ian Malcolm. Malcolm is ready to explain himself after all this mystery surrounding his argument that the park is unsafe. 
Remember, Gennaro was upset with him because he wasn't being forthcoming. He asks for a computer tally of the proconsignathus population and transmits the results onto the screen in the car on page 161. And he asks that they search for more than the 238 expected to be found in the park. Malcolm blows all their minds and flatly reports, Now you see the flaw in your procedures on 164. You only track the expected number of dinosaurs. You were worried about losing animals, but your procedures were designed to advise you instantly if you had less than the expected number. But that wasn't the problem. The problem was you had more than the expected number. Wu won't accept the breeding argument, but Malcolm now has three data to refer to. Refer to. Grant's eggshell, the population tally, and the compi height graph. The Gaussian distribution shows a normal curve showing a natural population, when it should be a staggered graph showing three peaks because the population was introduced in three batches. The graph you got is a graph of a breeding population, summarizes Malcolm. John Arnold. Arnold transmits a record of all 238 dinosaurs in the park to Malcolm and says, quote, everything accounted for, as always, with satisfaction. He feels this proves that the dinosaurs are obviously not breeding, but as he begins to understand Malcolm's inquiry, he frowns. The gravity of their mistakes dawn on him. As the numbers tally upwards, Arnold catches on to the error of their ways. He admits they always assumed there were only 238 dinosaurs, and so they never looked for more. They were too worried about missing an animal, not gaining animals. Arnold still can't believe that the dinosaurs are breeding, though. He believes that there must be another explanation for the extra animals in the tally. They all believed that the dinosaurs just can't breed. Dr. Henry Wu. Wu tries to assuage Hammond to help him understand what's going on on page 163. Wu assures everyone the dinosaurs cannot breed. Wu is in disbelief. He cannot accept that the animals are breeding on 164. Malcolm says, I'm afraid so. And Wu says, no. Staring at the data, he still can't see how his procedures have failed him. But he's beginning to accept that the breeding is true. Then Wu loses his cool, raising his voice by saying loudly, don't you know what this means? On 166, as Wu realizes what Malcolm had been telling them all along. Either it's a mistake, as he hopes, or everything about the park has been called into question. And that horrifies him. Donald Gennaro. Gennaro curses at the rising figures of dinosaurs on page 163. Each new animal feels like a whole new failure. Lex. She begins to complain that she's hungry on 163, and her complaining is never not going to be awful. Robert Muldoon. He swears out loud when he learns that the raptors are free in the park on 166. Dr. Alan Grant. Upon reviewing the data, Grant offers his expertise thanks to his specialty as a dinosaur nesting phenom. Quote, these numbers confirm that breeding is taking place in seven different sites around the island on 166. Stylistic techniques. We have the italics. That's all it can be. Hammond wholly believes in the controls at Jurassic Park and can't imagine that they're failing. What the hell is that? He barks on 162. And from where? I thought so. Hammond is proving to be huffy and emotive as he becomes more and more excitable. He began as a cheery fellow inviting everyone on this trip and is beginning to show his true colors. As the expression goes, conflict reveals character. All the animals in the park is emphasized, and the problem was you had more than the expected number. The emphasis illustrates where their failure has been all along. There's some exclamation. Nedry! Exclamation. You Have you screwed up again? Quickly looking to point blame at someone, Hammond has gotten himself worked up. He's furious at his park staff, and perhaps even embarrassed. And even worse, embarrassed in front of Malcolm. Tension. The tension as the tally rises is pretty serious in this chapter. Crichton does an extraordinary job demonstrating how the preconceptions at the park, the assumptions, are all flawed. That their systems of control are unsatisfactory, and everything that's been believed about the safety and control of Jurassic Park is made worse with each new dinosaur that is counted in the tally. 
We're literally just watching a number rise, but the conflict, dialogue, and drama raise the stakes considerably. That Crichton draws this out over a few minutes, as Arnold said, allows us to spend more time worrying and wondering. Cursing. I guess we spent more time cursing, too. Hammond curses, Gennaro curses, Arnold curses. This is a big deal, and everyone is feeling the weight of the revelation. And then once it's revealed that the Velociraptors are breeding, it's Muldoon's turn to curse. How else is one to express themselves, eh? Metatext. The compi height graph clearly illustrates how the shape of the data indicate that the compies live in a normal population, rather than an artificial population that was introduced in three batches. We get to read the graph rather than have a narrative about reading the graph, which is nice. I like when they include things for us to look at instead of telling us that they're looking at things. Foreshadowing. Creighton shows that all sorts of animals are breeding, but it doesn't sound too serious. The Otnelia, the Myasaura, the Hypsies. These are all mild-mannered herbivores, no problem. And then the Velociraptors. That's a problem. And it's written like that, too. We have an, we have an M-dash right there. The Procomps Ignathans are breeding, and so are the Othnelia, the Myasaur, the Hypsies, M-Dash, and the Velociraptors. Again, the final species is set apart from the rest, showing that this is the most consequential news yet to be revealed. Motifs, the illusion of control. The illusion of control comes tumbling down in this chapter, and it's terrific. Again, the idea that a hoax shows you what you expect to see is almost specifically referenced here. Ned re reveals that the, quote, computer allows the operator to enter the expected number of animals in order to make the counting process faster on 163. The word, quote, expected specifically links these two moments in the novel, both showing how control is the hoax being perpetrated here. Arnold confesses they made the assumption that there couldn't be more dinosaurs, so they didn't look for more. When the computer doesn't find 300 animals per the request, it flashes an error indicating something is wrong, but it's not that there aren't 300 animals to find, it's that the park has been out of control for months. Spielberg's 1993 film gives Ellie Sattler dialogue that spells this motif out uh, about as clearly as possible. She says, You never had control. That's the illusion. Now, I was overwhelmed by the power of this place. Well, I made a mistake, too. I didn't have enough respect for that power, and it's out now. And then she eats some ice cream. But you can see uh, that motif definitely there. It was totally in the book, and uh, it shows up a lot. Discussion. The dinosaurs. We get the complete list of all the dinosaurs at Jurassic Park. Tyrannosaurus, Myasaurus, Stegosaurus, Triceratops, Procomsignathus, Othnelia, Velociraptor, Apatosaurus, Hadrosaurus, Dilophosaurus, Pterosaurs, Hypsilophodons, Euplocephalus, Styracosaurus, and Microceratops. Uh, there is a total of 238 animals to be expected in the park. And this is the total list, unless you got one of those fancy accidental versions of the manuscript that sneaks Colovasaurus onto the list in place of Microceratops, which I just can't understand how something like that happens. Child of the 80s. Transmitting a computer's results to the screen in the dash of the Land Cruiser is insane technology for the 80s. Is it being transmitted by radio signals? Seriously, how is this being done? Holy cow! I don't believe the park had Wi-Fi. Like, that wasn't a thing. This is astounding technology. In about two more chapters, they won't even be able to operate a walkie-talkie, but for now, they can transmit data from one computer into a car. Perhaps Crichton misunderstood how CD-ROMs work, because th this just doesn't hold water. I don't get how that works. But, uh, yeah, that's just strange. Building a mystery. We get two new mysteries at Jurassic Park in this chapter. How does a population of entirely female animals begin to breed, and why are there small increases in the big animals, the Myasaur and the Hypsies, but bigger increases in the small animals? It must be a mistake. And we'll probably get to the answers of that stuff 
in time as we go through the book. So signing off today, I want to say thank you to my special guest, Executive Director of the Institute for Liberal Studies, Matt Bufton. It's so terrific to have him come on and join us. Uh, thanks so much, Matt. Uh, go check out that tune in Moana and, and let me know what you think. I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book and add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show or be a guest on the show, chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park. You can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, you can drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. The Jurassic Park cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Cavers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers. Or me, I'm on Twitter at RogersRyan22. Thank you dearly for tuning in to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast, where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park and also that type too. Until next time. Ooh, ooh, ooh.